Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Terry Tempest Williams, whose latest book is Erosion, Essays on Undoing, also the author of The Hour of Land, which is a personal topography of America's national parks. Also, several books, including Refuge, an Unnatural History of Family and Place, and When Women Were Birds. There are 16 books in all. Erosion is a collection of essays. They're kind of depressing essays because things are getting worse and worse. You're involved with social justice, conservation, Native American rights, women's health, It's hard to classify exactly what Terry Tempest Williams writes, but it's mostly about our relationship with nature and our relationship with each other, I think. I want to start by talking about some of the issues in erosion. And the first one that hit me hardest is, and this was going on during Obama's administration and before, which is leasing of mineral rights and oil rights. In the West, a man named Tim DeChristopher, who you interview in Erosion in 2008, leased some lands he couldn't pay for, wound up going to jail. You and your husband, Brooke, did the same thing in 2016. What is this? It sounds like this ripoff has been going on for a long time. That's right. It has, Richard. And first of all, I just want to say what an honor it is to be on your show. And I just appreciate the voice that you give to us as writers. And I also want to just express my gratitude to KPFA and to my longtime friend, Andrea Lewis, who I think about often. And I just honor the free speech that is here. You're exactly right. The Bureau of Land Management has been ripping off the American people for a very long time. In 1920, the Minerals Leasing Act was put into play. Oil and gas companies can lease public lands, our lands, our public commons, for as much as $1.50 an acre. And in 2008, as you mentioned, a student from the University of Utah named Tim DeChristopher unintentionally, but then very intentionally, saw what was happening when he went into this bidding arena. It was a cold day. There was a protest outside. He came in. A woman said, are you here to bid on the oil and gas leases? And he said, why, yes. And they handed him a number, bidder 70. And he was an economics student, a very smart economics student who was also concerned about climate change. And as he heard these numbers and these pieces of land being auctioned, he realized that he was going to disrupt this auction. And he bid them up to, I think, $1.8 million. And then someone figured out this was not going as planned. And they stopped the auction. Long story shorter, after several years, he was 
convicted on two felony counts of disrupting an oil and gas lease and served two years in a federal prison. Essentially for calling a ripoff a ripoff. That's right. And honoring um, the practice of civil disobedience. You didn't see any of the traitors of the 2008 downturn go to jail, much less set foot in a court. Eight years later, Brooke and I found ourselves supporting some students in a similar action. Many of us were protesting this practice. I was working at the University of Utah in the Environmental Humanities Program, and we were, as students, all transformed, all of us, by looking at how the lens of environmental humanities can impact oil and gas dependent communities like Vernal, like Moab, Indian lands, etc. I went to Paris. I was in one of the manifestations, demonstrations from the Arc de Triomphe to the Eiffel Tower. And it, at one point, Richard, I just thought, I can't do this anymore. You know, it, it isn't enough. And I remember as we turned the corner, there were thousands of us like water, you know, flowing toward the Eiffel Tower. I stepped out of that river and I sat down on the ground and I thought, I have to go home and do something that's real. And just then, a group of indigenous elders from the Amazon were carrying a banner that said, keep it in the ground. And I thought, that's what I need to do is go home and keep it in the ground. A month later, two months later, um, we found ourselves in this auction. As an introvert, I went into the wrong line. I found myself inside, not outside. And the protesters disrupted the auction. They were told to leave. They stayed. They disrupted again. They were removed. I was in. And as Tim did, I saw the crass language that was being used. I knew the lands that were up for auction. They were very near where we live in Grand County, Utah, just outside Arches National Park. I also knew that if we could pay for these leases, then it was within our right as an American citizen. Yeah, this is very different than what he did. He was trying to drive up the price, but you're just talking about as American citizens going in and leasing for yourself. Right. And, you know, Utah's a small town, and I happen to know one of the agents there. He said, Terry, if you are misrepresenting yourself, you could go to prison. And I said, I know that as an American citizen, if I can afford to buy these leases, we have every right to be here. I also knew that if we bought a lease that a, a quote-unquote legitimate company was going to use, then that it would lessen the power of what we were going to do. So I knew that after the auction, there is what is called a remnant sale. And those that the oil and gas companies did not want um, go up for sale for half price. So say it was $3 an acre, you could purchase these for $1.50, which is less than a cup of coffee. And Brooke and I met outside, and we both had the same idea. We went to the BLM office. We got out the maps. We saw the remnant um, sales, and we realized strategically there was one that was next to a wilderness study area. There was another one that was sage grouse habitat, and we purchased two leases for and I think it amounted to 1,120 acres. We could do this, not because we're wealthy, but because the price of oil had plummeted. And we handed them our debit card and hoped to heaven that we had enough money to cover that. How much was it? It was just under 3000 I think, $3,000. It's and very affordable. For 1,120 yeah. acres to be 
develop for oil and gas. What we said was we are not going to develop these for oil and gas until science can show us that they are worth more above ground than below, given the cost of climate. That turned out to be very controversial, as did our action. Again, long story shorter, we waited nine months, and then the Bureau of Land Management revoked our leases, saying that we had not done due diligence and that we were illegitimate to the process. What we found out um, through our attorneys and the Western Environmental Law Center has kindly taken us pro bono as their clients through two freedom of information requests. We found out that no person or company who has bought oil and gas leases legally, which would be us, has ever been turned down their lease. They have never had their lease revoked. We were the first ones since 1920. There's one other element, which is in erosion, which is that many of these companies that leased didn't want to do anything until the price was worthwhile. So you were actually in the same position as the companies themselves. That's exactly right, Richard. It was political. It's still political. We are now past the three-year mark, and we have heard nothing. We appealed the decision in the Department of Interior. Our case is before the Land Board of Appeals. Justice deferred is justice denied. Did you go to um, any Democratic senators and explain what was going on? Our senators. Well, that's why I said Democratic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, Tom Udall, who I think is one of the most brilliant, moral, spiritual senators he knew and still knows. You know, we're waiting for a decision, and I, I think that our strategy now is we're going to start to push it. Because either way, if they give us the leases, that will be significant. And if they don't give us the leases, it will be significant. Well, this is an example of crony capitalism. I mean, you know, if you open up bidding, people should be able to bid. And we now are legitimate. We formed an LLC. It's called Tempest Energy. And my father, who has been in the energy business, ironically, is the CEO. He's 86. He's still feisty. And I can't say on the radio what he said when we purchased these leases, except for that we had made a mockery of our family. And then he said, you know, these blankety-blankety-blank will kill you. And I know them. And someone has to know what they're doing. So it's become a family affair. And I think he understands that You know, my family isn't in the oil business per se, but they lay the pipe, they dig the ditches. And I think what my father would say if he were here is that he is certainly not against oil and gas development, but what he is against is the rapidity and scale with which it is happening now in the American West. Utah, from the vantage point of a raven, looks like an exposed nervous system, and it's breaking all of our hearts. And not only that, but it's also infringing on native rights, and and sacred lands. Terry Tempest Williams, one of the things that's happened in the past few months is all we're hearing about is impeachment. But it strikes me that what's going on below the surface is far worse because a lot of these things that are happening under the Trump administration, including the destruction of Bears Ears National Monument, semi-destruction of Grand Staircase Escalante, All of these things are happening, yet when everybody's just talking about impeachment, Ukraine, this stuff isn't getting out. I think that's a really important point, Richard, and thank you for making it. You know, living in Utah, a friend of mine, Fuzzle Sheikh, said, 
it's a beautiful violence. And our state is hardly recognizable in the last 10 years of what has happened. And it's not just, I have to say, the Trump administration, although it's been expanded and it's brutal and it's illegal, but under the Obama administration, they did twice the drilling and oil and gas exploration that the Bush-Cheney regime did. So this has been going on for a long time. Right now, it is out of control. And as you mentioned, um, in 2016, President Obama established the Bears Ears National Monument, 1.3 million acres. It was a handshake across history, saying to the tribes, to the Hopi, the Navajo, Diné, Zuni, Ute nations, we hear you, we see you. And when they said these lands are sacred, this is where the bones of our ancestors are buried, this is where our medicines are held, this is where we perform our ceremonies, they honored that and they made this a national monument. A year later, less than, Donald Trump, by order of an executive order, asked that the national monuments be reviewed, those that had been established from 1996 to 2016, those monuments that were over 100,000 acres, he wanted them assessed. In the end, Utah was the target. Grand Staircase Escalante was established under Clinton in 1996. Bears Ears, 2016. This was an order given to Trump by Senator Orrin Hatch, his last bow and homage to the oil and gas companies. And it was an enormous betrayal to the tribes. 85% of Bears Ears National Monument was gutted. Um, Grand Staircase was cut in half. And now I can tell you that the lands that were protected are now open for business. We're talking about oil, gas, fracked gas, coal, and uranium. Is Romney any better than Hatch? No. Same thing. And, I mean, I hope that he will lead a resistance against Trump, but I have to say I don't see evidence of it. You know, he could have really been a champion on public lands and understood what this means. He's from Boston. He's an Easterner and a Midwesterner by birth. He's also my cousin. He went down and supported those who were opposed to the monument, put on a white hat, let's make America great again, and supported this action. And there are deep Mormon roots in these decisions because what our public lands, which prior to that were native lands, were really viewed at the turn of the century, in the 19th century, as Mormon lands. And they want them back. And that's really the bulk of the issue. They want them back for exploration, for money, or? They want them as their own. They want them for the so-called jobs. They want them to exploit as they wish. They want them for their cattle. They want them for their own playground. And that's really, I think, at the heart of this, is it's, it's um, a resentment of the frontier Mormons against the United States government that actually kicked them out of the state of Utah because of polygamy. So these roots run deep for settlers, for oppressors. And what we're seeing in San Juan County is a racism that, I mean, I want to say unbearable, but that's not the right word. It is an atrocity. It is painful. And these are my people. And I have had to look in the mirror and say, 
You know, I am not on the outside, I am on the inside. And I am part of this white supremacy. And what do I do with my privilege? And it's been incredibly painful. And working with the elders, working with the Native people in my own state has changed me. And I think it's changed all of us in the state who care about land and social justice and decency. I know that there are Democrats in Salt Lake City, of course, outside Salt Lake City. They look at Salt Lake City as the center of apostasy. But still, there is movement inside Utah. And I know a lot of Mormons who did not vote for Trump because they found him immoral. My family didn't vote for Trump. They voted for the third party. And I have to say the young people give me hope. You know, there's a resistance within the LDS community of of young people that are saying this is our history. We have to make amends. We have to make apologies. This is not who we are today. So I actually, you know, you talk about this being a depressing book. My father would agree with you. <laughs> um, but I don't think it is. I think it's stating it as a what is and really thinking about what could be. And I think from my point of view, engagement is hope and engagement is a prayer even when it comes to the Mormon religion. Changing the subject but not, why is the sage grouse important? I had a friend who said, you cannot be serious. Someone in Washington not so long ago said to me, which I think is the most absurd question, it's such a Washington question, who's the most powerful person in the American West? And without thinking, I said, the sage grouse. And they said, no, no, I'm serious. And I said, so am I. The sage grouse is this extraordinary bird. Have you ever seen one? I, I don't know if I have. I'm not a birder. They're about, I, I want to say three feet tall. I mean, you know, three feet from the beak to the tail. But they're these wonderful gallinaceous birds. They're like prairie chickens. You know, they strut around and have these kind of air sacs that attract the female that boom, 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 and right. then fan their tails around. They're very regal. They exist on the sage flats. They have ancestral leks, L-E-K, where they have done these strutting dances, courtship behavior dances, for thousands of years. They now are endangered, and it is the only thing keeping the oil and gas companies at bay because of the Endangered Species Act. You know, what gives us the right to take this species down the path of extinction? which is what's happening. Because of the power of the Endangered Species Act, of protecting an endangered species habitat, what that meant is that oil and gas companies, coal companies, could not develop. And they didn't want to take on the Endangered Species Act. So what happened, it forced governors in six to eight states, western states, to come together around the table with conservationists and come up with, with individual management plans. and and. Former Secretary of Interior, um, Sally Jewell, gets a lot of credit for that. Many of us were critical of, of the plans, but boy, now we long for them. And then when Secretary of Interior Zinke came in, he got rid of all of those plans, and now it's open season again on the sage grouse. But again, because of the endangered species, they're going to have to go into the courts and see what the rights are, and that's why you see 
an attempt to gut the Endangered Species Act along with the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, et cetera, et cetera. Why we have the 80-plus regulations that have all been removed in Congress, just as your point at the beginning of the show, without people knowing what's really happening. You know, if the sage-grouse go, the prairie dogs go, the pronghorn antelope go, and you have a whole sage-step ecosystem that is at risk. If you would have told me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, as a child, that the ubiquitous sagebrush ocean would be at risk 50 years later, I would not have believed you. But that is the case. But then we add climate change to this. I mean, around here, years ago, every fall, and people who've lived in the Bay Area know this, every fall, you would have to go through your house once or twice and clean off all the dead flies. They'd Hmm. get in the house, these big, ugly flies, and then they'd drop. I mean, you couldn't avoid it. You open the door, they would come in. I have not seen a dead fly on my sill for years. Isn't that interesting? I mean, these are the markers, right? Yeah. That we would take for granted. Right where Brooke and I live in Castle Valley, just south of the Colorado River, we are in deep drought to the point where we've been putting out bowls of water for the migrating birds coming through. Well, in August, I saw a bald eagle on the edge of the Colorado River just drenching himself, herself. I saw a pronghorn antelope, what's the word, emaciated. Um, for lack of water. It's it's grim. And I noticed in the New York Times, maybe you saw, you could put in the name of your county and see where you are on the scale of climate, you know, that anything above two Celsius right. is severe. Where we live in Moab, in Grand County, we are at 2.5 Celsius. So it's already started. And we see it everywhere, just as as you're talking about flies. We're seeing it in drought. We're seeing it in pink snow. We're seeing it in changing weather patterns. The October Democratic debate, climate change was never mentioned. I mean, it was mentioned by candidates, but there was never a question about it. I know. And I noticed that Governor Inslee had said exactly that. Not one question about climate change. Not one. And here we are in a climate crisis. It's the biggest existential crisis. And I've interviewed several people about it and talking to you about it now. There's the burning in the Amazon, which had its headline two weeks ago or three weeks ago or a month ago, whenever it was, and then vanished. Are they still burning? I would assume so, and it just disappears. Denial is a very powerful human emotion. I don't think we give it enough credit. And even though our lives are being affected by it, we are watching these migrations. We are watching these forests burn. We are watching the changes in our own communities it still isn't touching us in a deep way. Part of it, of course, is that we don't necessarily feel there's anything we can do. It's like when you were on that march and you said, I have to do something, and you went ahead and did it. But what what can we do? I mean, I can become a vegetarian and that will stop cattle. No, it won't. Uh, I can fly less. That's for sure. I could drive less. And I think it's, you know, when I say it doesn't touch us deeply, I just mean it for so many of us, especially in privileged positions, we're, we're comfortable and it, it remains an abstraction. And, and yet when we look around us, it's anything but abstract. 
I think it's less abstract for you. In reading erosion, you could see that because you could see those changes. There's a scene where you're swimming in the Great Salt Lake. And back in the days when I had a boyfriend in Idaho Falls, I was going through Salt Lake. We met in Salt Lake sometimes. And I would see the Great Salt Lake. How has that changed since the late 90s? It's it's a totally different landscape. You know, and someone said to me, well, it's easy for you to write about climate change in the desert. It's not affecting you. You know, the seas aren't rising out your front door. And I said, no, but the heat is. The desecration of the land is. And you go out to Great Salt Lake now. And, you know, Fremont Island is exposed. You can walk out there. Gunnison Island, which was a haven and a refuge for white pelicans. Now coyotes are out there, and the mortality rate of of the young pelicans is has skyrocketed. When we were out walking near the spiral jetty, it took us, well, it was probably a mile and a half to get to the water. When I was writing the book Refuge, when my mother died from ovarian cancer, you couldn't get near you, you couldn't see the spiral jetty because it was under water. And I didn't see it for 10 years late, you know, until 10 years after um, the flood. So it's a completely different landscape. It's having huge impacts on the birds. When we walked that mile and a half from the spiral jetty to the edge of the water because we wanted to touch Great Salt Lake, every 20 feet, maybe 15 feet, was another splayed carcass of a pelican. Why? I actually called the Department of Natural Resources and said, what's going on? And they said, because of the coyote predation, the young pelicans try to escape. They fly too early. They get as far to the shore as where the spiral jetty is, but there's no fresh water. They can't make it to Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge where their parents are corralling and fishing. And so therefore, they die of of starvation and thirst. And we followed two of those pelicans, and it was like following two fasting monks. Mormon church even aware of climate change? I think they are, and and certainly the younger generation. And, and are the elders, are, is the prophet? I would think so, but are they doing anything about it? No. Because of commerce, because of capitalism. You grew up in Mormon world and, you know, for a while there I was semi-living occasionally in Mormon world. I was the Jew over there. I even went in through a... a There's uncom- a lot of similarities, right? <laughs> Zion? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, went Gentiles? A, yep. Uh, I went through an uh, unconsecrated um, temple in Bountiful. Oh, really? Just before it became consecrated, I saw what that was like. What I found among Mormons is a certain honesty. I mean, obviously, whatever's going on inside is different, but on the surface, an honesty that a lot of other people didn't have. And it seems to me that that's harnessed only for the church. It's such a complicated... I mean, I think that's true growing up. You know, you gave 10% of everything you had, as children included, you know to the church. The communities are closed, not open. And I had many friends who were not LDS, and they felt that isolation or, or I, yeah, they were, they were not welcome. 
um, hopefully they felt welcomed in our family. You know, my grandfather was not LDS, and I saw what that looked like. And I remember he was a ham radio operator underneath his glass, you know, where he had it on top of his table. It said, um, there is no one church, there is no one religion. But I have to think about that. I think that's true. Has the church become more worldly? In some ways, yes. In some ways, I think it's become more insulated. And so, you know, it's one of the points I make out in, in erosion, that we are eroding and evolving at once. And I feel that with the Mormon church. You know, I see the erosion of the church in terms of its racism in rural Utah, and yet in a place like Salt Lake City, and certainly in Boston and Washington, D.C., I see an evolving church. And the church is changing because the young people are changing, the women are changing. So I think it's not so different than other religions. You know, I'm at the Harvard Divinity School now, and the largest group of seekers is known as the noms, belonging to a non-denominational point of view. So I don't think it's just Mormons, but I think it's certainly indicative of Mormons. Well, what I noticed is that the 10% tithe makes them socialists. <laughs> I know. They talk about, oh, we hate socialism, but they're giving 10% flat tax, yeah. and they're getting social benefits from it. Yes, they are. <laughs> you know, it's a church of paradox, and I... I owe a great deal to my Mormon roots in terms of a sense of community and a sense of generosity, and I do value prayer and a spiritual orientation in the world, but it is the insularity, it is the racism, it is the misogyny, and um, a mighty bow to capitalism that has, I think, in many ways radicalized me. Let's go back then. Okay, so you grew up in Utah in the church. What was the sign to you that pointed and said, uh-uh, no? That they would call Native people Lamanites, cursed, dark skin, that African-American people could not, men could not hold the priesthood, that women could not hold the priesthood, and that when finally that door was open where African-American men could join the priesthood, I found out I was in high school, it was because of a lawsuit of discrimination. It wasn't a revelation, as we were told. So I think it started with racism. And I'm still shocked by the racism that is exhibited by the Mormon church. I also think the stand that the church made early on against gay people you know, I remember being in San Francisco during one of the elections and the proposition. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And yeah. the money that was poured into that election. So I think between racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, should we make the list? You know, the church has got to come forward, I think, with more compassionate prophecies. For you specifically, do you recall anything or was it just a gradual little by little comprehension? I think it was an erosion of belief. So it was. Yeah. You know, I think so. it was when my mother was sick. I remember in church someone said, well, she's obviously sinned. And I thought, no, she hasn't. It was my grandfather who, I'm ad who I adored, who was not LDS. They said, well, he's going to hell. And I thought, no, he isn't. It was, you know, as I said, growing up around Native people, the Diné, the Navajo, and hearing that they were cursed. And I thought, no, 
no. It just kept coming back, no, 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 no. And then when my brothers, who were 12, were called elders, and as a, as a young woman, I had no voice, I thought, no, if birds have a voice, so do I. So it was both erosional. If there was a moment where I thought, I do not belong here because it belongs everywhere, it would have been when I was working um, on the Navajo Reservation. I was doing my thesis, and I was reading The Creation Myths by Maria Louise von Franz. And there was Eve, Adam and Eve. Right next to it was Changing Woman in the Navajo tradition. There was Kali. You know, there was Arishkagal in the Sumerian. And I thought, these are stories, not truths. They're truths beyond the truths. And it was in that moment that I think I saw a larger world. Where did environmentalism come in for you? Was it again gradual or was it just going somewhere and going, oh my God? We were raised outside. You know, my family, as I said, you know, contractors who dug ditches um, to lay pipe for water, for natural gas, for sewage. We were right there alongside the truck. So we grew up in the West outside camping. I had a grandmother who loved birds. She gave me um, my first bird book when I was five with three red lines. And she said, Terry, this is our secret. It says, I love you. You know, we watched the stars. We knew the names of wildflowers. My family hunts. They have more guns than I can tell you. It could be called an arsenal. And I remember as the oldest granddaughter and you know, child of, of a very close extended family going out rabbit hunting with them. And I remember when the first rabbit was killed. That was the day I became an environmentalist. Because while everyone else just kept moving along, shooting jackrabbits, I knelt down and watched that jackrabbit die. I remember my father once took me hunting in New York, and I saw a deer, and I raised the gun, and I looked at the deer, and the deer looked toward me, and then the deer happily trotted off. And my father, you know, said, you saw a deer and you didn't shoot. And, you know, I was kind of, at the time, kind of crushed. But when I got back, my mom said, good for you. That first time you see that. It's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. That's so interesting. You know, I was going to say, I also have to say that it deepened and that environmental issues became issues of justice at the Nevada test site when I realized that I belonged to a clan of one-breasted women and nine women in my family had all had mastectomies and seven were dead. That, that's the same series of early 50s tests, the conqueror that killed off John Wayne and Agnes Moorhead too, right? Yeah. I mean, nuclear testing in the desert from 1952 to 1966. Around St. George. Yeah, and that those tests were continuing until 1992. And I was just down in St. George, and I asked them because I um, read a piece from Erosion called Boom, and I asked them how many in this room, and there were about 250, have not had a member die from cancer. Not one hand went up. And in our family alone, um, over 50% are dead from cancer. What prompted you to become a writer? I think I always kept a journal because that's where I could speak. If I couldn't speak outwardly, I could speak inwardly on the page. I had a locked journal from my brothers and parents. So eventually you wrote a children's book, co-authored. 
Yeah, that seemed safe. <laughs> but would you believe me if I told you the first book that I wrote was with Ted Major, who was at the Teton Science School, my mentor. It was published here in San Francisco on Bush Street from Sierra Club Books. When I found out that that was being published, and Diana Landau was my editor, I did not tell anyone except for my husband for a year. That it had been published? That it was accepted. Really? And I'm still shocked by that, but I think it was... It was a transgressive act to have a voice. As a woman in the Mormon church? Yes, even if it was about snow. That meant that it must have taken a lot of effort and guts to put out refuge, to write it, and then get it published. It still does. Really? I mean, I've been nervous for this interview, you know, this conversation, because I think every time I open my voice, I know that I am transgressing against my heritage and, you know, I'm 64 years old. Every time I go to speak publicly, I am terrified. And then I forget about it, and it's not about me. It's about something so much larger than ourselves. But there are consequences, and I'm aware of that. I'm also aware of the privilege of a voice and why it matters to speak, especially now. So many people are afraid, rightfully so. And I just feel, you know, if I can't speak, if I can't find the courage to say the unsayable, then I have no business being a writer. Terry Tempest Williams, uh, I was going to interview you three or four years ago, I don't remember exactly when, for the Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks. I chose 12. And, you know, I thought, finally, this is going to be a happy book, a joyous book, an easy book. You know, I'm not going into those dark places. And it it did not turn out that way because, again, you cannot think about Yosemite National Park without thinking about the Indian Wars, without thinking about displaced people. And it really became a book about America. In those few years since you traveled to those places, have you gone back and seen changes just from this book to today in terms of, of climate change? I've seen changes in the numbers of people. You know, you go to Grand Teton National Park or Yellowstone, Zion arches. You can't even get into our national parks anymore. Why? I think it's the need. You know, people want to see something real. They want to be moved. They want to feel smaller. They want to experience awe and wonder. And now I think we're loving our parks to death. And so the parks are having to say, um, you know, we need to put boundaries. We, you know, if the parking lot is full, then you have to wait until a parking space is opened. Um, there are reservation systems. There's all of those things. But on a deeper level, I mean, just growing up, knowing that Skillet Glacier on Mount Moran, that, that glacier is gone. You know, having spent a childhood in Glacier National Park, one day people will say, what is a glacier? Um, Why is it called Glacier Park? Exactly. So I think we're seeing huge shifts in our national parks that carry the stories our stories, many stories, both human and wild, in the stratigraphy of its history. There are a couple of other stories in erosion I'd like to talk about, one of which is you were fired, however it played out, by the University of Utah because you took out those leases? They would not tell you that, but it was purely political. They wanted me gone. You can make your own decision, but I was called into the dean's office um, she was a new dean from Indiana, didn't know the state, didn't know 
what was really happening, I don't think. Um, but I was called in two weeks after purchasing those leases, and she said, Terry, we want to thank you for your service, but you're no longer teaching here. And by her side was the lead University of Utah attorney. It was painful. You know, my only ambition in life was to teach there, to to stay in Utah, and I loved my students. I was there 13 years with the Environmental Humanities Program. I helped co-found it with um, the previous dean, Robert Newman, and we had extraordinary students, and I can say that they are peppering the West now as, you know, public servants. They've run for offices. They've won novelists, filmmakers, teachers, you know, working for the federal agencies. So I'm so proud of them and what they have done and what they're doing. And the program is still thriving, which makes me happy. But it broke my heart, I have to tell you. The other talk about breaking your heart is the last part of the book. The saddest is about the the death of your brother by suicide, which I guess brought everything to the surface as well. It struck me that I couldn't have written a book an essay like that, it would have been too painful. How did you do it? You know, I can't even find the words. Dan was such a beautiful being. Um, We were immensely close. Three months before his death by suicide, he called me and said, Tara, I'm eroding. That's really where this book came from. And he said, you're in denial. And he said, I'm fucked, you're fucked. The world is fucked. Why can't you see that? Let me go. You've got to let it all go, all of it. And I remember saying to him, I can't let you go. I can't let the earth go. There's always something, isn't there, that we can do. And, you know, and then I remember he had a mental illness. He struggled with depression. I'm not sure, Richard, that he wasn't gay. And in a Mormon culture, that is not acceptable. I think that's that was part of it, the underlying. We had many conversations about that. Um, I'm telling you this is in an intimate moment, obviously. He, he was a philosopher. He loved language. He was also a working man. His hands were calloused. He, he went up to the Balkan um, thinking he would get rich. He came back shattered like so many other men working on the frack lines. He was homeless for a while. And I think he finally realized, you know, his suffering did not have meaning for him anymore. I think he was a casualty of of this moment, um, whether it was opiate drugs, whether it was the the economic turndown. And when I found out that he had hung himself, the first thing out of my mouth was, I'm so proud of him, because I feel like in his instance it was an act of courage. I had to write that piece. I had to write that piece to honor him. I had to write that piece to remember him. And I think being able to experience his cremation with my youngest brother was a deep, deep healing. And again, when we talk about our undoing, how to say this, it was our healing. For me, reading that brought back, my mom died of cancer, but it brought back all of my feelings from that. And then the end about the cremation, I had never read about what it's really like. I didn't know it was possible to witness. You know, I thought that was something in India or in other cultures in Bali. 
But my youngest brother was fearless, and he made a promise to Dan. Dan said, I've been buried too long. I want Sky. Will you be there as I am cremated? And we were. And talk about Mormons. The, the man who performed the cremation was in a black suit with welder's gloves. And he was like a, a Tai Chi master. It was the most beautiful thing I have ever witnessed. And when we watched him break the bones, separate the bones and carry the bones into this other room, we could feel the last heat of our brother's body. And I remember um, Mr. Rabe walked outside for a bit, and I said to Hank, what are you thinking? And we were standing before three trays of our brother's bones, and he said probably the same thing you're thinking. Are they rabbit, are they coyote, or raven? That there is no hierarchy to death, that, that we do have the strength to not look away, but to hold that which we love even as we are losing them. And I think that's the point of these essays, is that our undoing can be our becoming, that we don't have to be in isolation. It's not about giving up. It's, it's giving in to the beauty and brokenness of what it means to be human. Terry Tempest Williams, you've completed this book. Do you have another book on the horizon? I don't. I just want to be in the desert watching birds and putting out water during drought. You've been listening to an interview with Terry Tempest Williams, whose latest book is Erosion, Essays of Undoing. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>